Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. And a real warm welcome to you to Calvary St. George's, uh, Calvary Church. Uh, We have two weeks left in the liturgical year. And uh, the appointed readings in our gospel and lectionary uh, begin to shift our attention and our focus to uh, the end of the world. I really wanted our closing hymn this Sunday to be the 1987 smash hit by R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it, and we feel fine. But um, in all seriousness, nothing quite captivates our attention like the end times, or what is theologically known as the eschaton. Uh, Everyone, whether they admit it or not, uh, has an eschaton, has an understanding of the end. Even atheists have an understanding of the end with uh, their embrace of the Hegelian dialectic. Uh, The French existentialists had an understanding of the end um, and uh, which they went out. and, uh, And there were all of these suicide cults in Paris and Vienna the turn of the 20th century, where they would go out and meet death on their own terms. The Mayans, you remember 2012 and all the rage with the end of the Mayan calendar, and our kitchen appliances would rise up and revolt. Um, uh, I actually, to tell you the truth, what I think happened is, is, so if you look in the Book of Common Prayer, we can predict Easter till about 235. We could keep going, but people were like, when 1979, they were like, 235, that's pretty good. I think that's probably what happened with the Mayans, and they just never kept going after that. But um, that was supposed to be really funny. But, uh, um, uh, but the truth is, is that, and unfortunately, the church, when it comes to the end times, has gone absolutely haywire. And people have made a lot of money off of people's fears. You've got books, you've got movies, you've got theories, you've got institutes, you've got predictions. And all of the popular ones that you probably have heard of were actually invented around the 19th and 20th century as a result of war, and uh, especially World War I and World War II, and the highly publicized conflicts in the Middle East. But what happens, you see here, is everybody's got an eschaton. Everybody's got an understanding of the end, because in the end, all of us are going to die. You know, happy Thanksgiving. But uh, um, that's, uh, you know, all of us are going to die. And, uh, but when we begin to predict the end of the world and prepare for it as though it's some sort of an appointment, well, that's when we get into trouble. However, here's the word for New Yorkers. Uh, those of us who think that we're just going to keep petering on forever, that's absolutely wrong too. The Bible is clear that there is going to be an end, and this age is passing away. And so our gospel reading today takes us right up to the end. It takes us to this point in Jesus' life, which we in the church have called Holy Week. And Jesus, along with his disciples, are walking along the temple courts, and uh, the disciples are marveling at this thing. The temple, at the time of Jesus, uh, was this stunning edifice. See, what had happened was that Solomon built a temple way back in the day. It was destroyed by the Assyrians. And then when the Jews came back from exile from Babylon, they built another one. But it was... um, it was pretty shabby. It was a shadow of itself. If you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, you can read all about the kind of the depression that sat in as a result of the shadow of the temple. And so then you for, fast forward all the way to Jesus' day, and you have King Herod, and Israel's under Roman occup- 
occupation. And you have King Herod, who's a despot king. He's not even Jewish. He's Phoenician. He is trying to uh, rebuild and, and fancify the temple in order to gain cred and that the Jews would recognize him and legitimize his rule. And it was awesome. It was awesome. He had gold grape leaves going around the thing and giant gold grapes hanging off the ceiling. And uh, the disciples couldn't help, because they were from Galilee, the country, but even the Jews living in Jerusalem, they couldn't help but marvel at this structure. And Jesus says in a loud voice, listen, the days are coming, he says, when one stone won't be left standing upon another that will be thrown down. That was a horribly, horribly offensive thing to say, Jesus. Uh, That could get you crucified. And it did. Because the temple was the national and religious center of Israel. It was the place where the glory of God had formerly dwelt. It was where once the Ark of the Covenant was held and the mercy seat of God was found. And it was still a place of sacrifice. However, like a corrupt king, those sacrifices had become pro forma transactions and the priesthood, sadly, was sold to the highest bidder, member of the Sadducees. Nevertheless, with all of this corruption, the temple there, and why they marveled at it, was that it was the center of Israel's religious life. It was the center of its history. It was the center of every Israelite's dream, hope, and expectation. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. And it's in that statement that we begin to make sense of the end times in our own lives. This is my first point. You see, what Jesus is talking about here was very real to the disciples. It ripped it right out of abstraction and placed it in reality. And what he's talking about here rips it out of abstraction for you and places it in your reality as well. Because the end is not found in abstraction. And I've been coming to learn this in a real way. The end is actually rooted in our realities. And the temple was a reality for every Israelite. And you've got temples in your lives as well that sit right there at the center and you marvel at. The identities at the center of our lives. The histories at the center of our lives. The dreams and the hopes and the aspirations. And then they get torn down. And if you still have a temple, praise God, but hear me out, because it's going to come crashing. The temples in our lives, when they get torn down, it can be shocking, and it can be painful. That's the reality. And so like the disciples, we want to prepare for it. That's why we're always predicting the end. The disciples ask, when will this be? Because this is a prophetic moment. Make no doubt about it. And it's a prophetic moment that's not in the abstraction, but in the reality. You see, here's a side note. Jesus made lots of predictions, and all of them came true. But the two major predictions he made, the two major prophecies he made, was his own death and resurrection and the destruction of the temple. And they both happened. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD during the Jewish wars with Rome. And you can go to Israel now, and you won't find the temple, but you'll find Al-Aqsar Mosque. And for centuries before that mosque went up there, it was just a giant trash heap on top of the mount. 
But when the disciples ask, when will this take place? You need to hear it in the proper tone. It's shock and awe. It is, when will this take place? Because what they're looking for is an answer to the end of the world. When's that end coming? When's that temple coming down? Because we want to get ready for it. You see, that's ultimately the problem. We want to take control. We're so worried, so we want to either prepare for it, or if you're like me, you go into the corner and get in the fetal position and just hope it'll pass you by. We do everything but trust in the saving work of Jesus and his gospel. And so for the sake of faith, Jesus, Jesus, for the sake of faith, Jesus doesn't tell you or the disciples when the exact moment's going to be. However, in the gospel here, he informs them of signs that will tell you that it's going to happen. Signs that it's going to happen. And here's where a lot of people make the mistake and they get messed up in, uh, in, in the understanding of the eschaton here. Is that um, they think that this is a linear teaching, but this isn't. Jesus breaks the eschaton up into two things. He first talks about it on the macro level. And then he speaks of the eschaton for the disciples in their own personal lives. So the disciples ask, when is this going to happen? And also, in order to understand really how to interpret this properly, is that you have to understand what the last days are. You see, the last days aren't some sort of distant, terrifying seven years sort of thing, you know. No, 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 no. You know, where we interpret the end with the New York Times in our right hand. No, 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 no. The last days have been 2,000 years since Jesus has ascended into heaven. We've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. So that's how you have to understand this passage, too. And so he begins, the disciples say, when will this happen? And Jesus responds first on the macro level. And he says, beware that you're not led astray. Because there are going to be people who come in my name, and there are going to be people that say that the end is near. And we've all seen this for 2,000 years. And the only thing that happens with that is that people grow broke or they die. They join a weird cult out in the middle of the desert in Waco. Or, and then he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't let that shock you. And that's been happening for 2,000 years. And then he says, you're going to see kingdoms and nations rise up. Just look at our own country, two political parties rising up. If you got beyond our three main news networks, you might understand that this is happening all over the place. But don't let it shock you, because this is bound to happen. And it's been happening for 2,000 years. You know, for the last two millennia, you've got earthquakes, check. You've got uh, famines and plagues, check. And there'll be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven, check. So that's the macro level. And then he takes the eschaton down to their lives, to the micro level. And he says, what's going to happen to the disciples? Because he says, but before all this occurs, and that's where people miss it all the time. And they try and lump it all together. He says, but before all this occurs, so he begins to speak directly to the disciples, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors. There you have an image of St. Paul being brought before the governor Felix. You know, this is all happening. Just read the book of Acts. But this is my second point. 
And it's a very important one, especially in our age of uh, do-it-yourself, self-help Christianity that defines much of American Christianity. The Christian faith has always been about the cross. It's always been about the cross. Because at the, and at the center of you, you've been baptized under the cross. And you are forgiven under the sign of the cross. And in a moment, you're going to be fed with the body and blood of Jesus under the cross. And you're going to rise from this place and you're going to go to sleep and do everything in between under the sign of the cross. And you see, you've got to understand this for Christianity really to make sense in your life. Christianity isn't so much about a way of life as it's a way, to, it's a way of making sense of the suffering and the frustrations of life, and to ultimately deal with the reality of death. And in an age when our goal is to avoid as much suffering as possible, believe me, I'm in that boat. (laughs) You know, I don't like to suffer. In an age when we just want to deny the reality of death, the gospel is a counterintuitive message. But remember... To die with Jesus is to be raised with him. And it is the resurrection that gives us the framework to not abandon all hope when the temples of our lives come tumbling down, but to cling to that gospel promise all the more. Jesus warns his followers. And this is where it goes back to the macro. Some of you, they will put the death Read the book of Acts, it happened. Look at our brothers and sisters who live in Islamic lands. And yet notice the next sentence. But not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance you will gain your life. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is is that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Though you die... You yet live, and not a hair on your head will perish, and by the endurance of your faith you will gain your lives. Now what does that mean? Does that mean I've got to muster up some strength on my own when like persecution really comes down? No, it means something different. My kids, and I'll explain it to you, my kids and I last night, we went and watched that movie Harriet yesterday about the abolitionist and political activist Harriet Tutman. Um, She was an amazing, amazing person. She escaped slavery and then used her freedom to make over 13 missions back to the South, rescued over 70 slaves. She's one of the few women in American history to lead an armed expedition. And she was an amazing person. And in the movie, there's this amazing scene um, where her father, who was a free man and managed the local dam, so he wasn't allowed to stay on the plantation. But he was a woodcarver. And on the night of her escape, she goes to him. She says, what am I going to do? What do I do? And after a few brief moments of um, of, um, instruction, where to go, he gives her an image that he had carved of himself, a token of himself, and he places it in her hand and he covers it up and he says, listen, whatever you face, and she faced slave hunters, raging rivers, wild animals. He said, whatever you face, Know that I am with you. Know that I am with you. 
that word, that token, became the catalyst for her endurance. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Jesus doesn't say at the end Christians are going to escape, but rather instead that he will see them through it. Notice he says, I'll supply every word for you. And that's the hidden comfort in that statement. And that's the hidden comfort for you when you face the pressure cooker of life. By the endurance of faith, you will gain your lives. And Jesus has given you all that you need to see you through this world. Because you've been given a token. You've been given the words of forgiveness preached to you. You've been given the word of baptism poured over your head. And in the minute when we gather around this altar in a real way, you're going to be given a token in your hand of the bread that is his body. And you're going to drink the wine that is his blood. You have been given a promise from God for you not to abandon faith, but to cling to it. For whoever believes in me, though he dies, he shall yet live and not die forever. And this is my third point. As you go through this life and your temples are torn down, remember Christ is coming soon. But until then, like Harriet's father gave Harriet, he has given you, Jesus has given you signs and promises for you to cling. Cling to the fact that your redemption is here. Your Jesus is here, and he will never leave you or forsake you until he comes again and you hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.